Hi, I'm Brian Ahern, author of The Influencer, Secrets to Success and Happiness, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Brian Ahern. Brian Ahern is the Chief Influence Officer at Influence People, an international speaker. He specializes in applying the science of influence in everyday situations. Brian's blog has readers in 200 countries, and he's been recognized as a top 30 influencer by Psychology Blog. His LinkedIn course on persuasive selling and coaching has benefited more than 400,000 people. He holds the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer designation and the Cialdini Persuasion Trainer designation, a rare combination. These specializations in the psychology of persuasion were earned directly from Robert Cialdini the most cited living social psychologist in the world on the science of ethical influence. In addition, Brian was named by the Science of Digital Marketing as a top 100 influencer in 2016. Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade That Are Lasting and Ethical was Brian's first book. It was an Amazon bestseller and was also named one of the top influence books of all time by Book Authority. His second book, Persuasive Selling to Relationship-Driven Insurance Agents, was an Amazon new release bestseller. Brian is based near Columbus, Ohio, where he lives with his wife, Jane, and his here to talk about his book, The Influencer, Secrets to Success and Happiness. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for having me on, Bill. I'm really excited to share with you and your audience today. That's terrific. Let's start here. When you were growing up, Brian, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? Probably one of the biggest influences on my life was my high school football coach, Todd Alice. One of the things that he told us was that luck was where preparation met opportunity. And that stuck with me, that I always need to be prepared. And if I am, then when the opportunities come, what we call luck will happen. What's an example of when you saw the truth or the wisdom of that advice? Well, I've seen the truth and wisdom all throughout my life that sometimes I am getting ready for something and it doesn't materialize. For example, I had a TED Talk that I was going to do in a week before the TED Talk, the pandemic hit and it was gone. But I knew that all the practice that I put in was going to pay dividends and all of a sudden that talk morphed into a keynote. So I've had many opportunities because of it, because I prepared myself. What you've learned from that is that you could always repurpose once you've made the investment in the preparation. Isn't that what you found in that experience? Absolutely. We may start with an intention on something and we think we know what's going to happen with it. And sometimes there's a different plan for it. And to be ready to pivot based on the way things are changing in circumstances, I think is part of the essence of wisdom. It's taking the knowledge that we have and applying it. Tell me, you didn't start out to become a thought leader in the area of influence. Where did your career first start, Brian? My career started in the insurance industry and I had no understanding of what I was getting into. It just was a job that was here in Columbus, Ohio, my hometown. Once I started to learn about it, I realized it was a wonderful field to be in. About a decade in, I got involved with sales training and it's through that that I came across Robert Cialdini's material on influence. I was so fascinated by it, Bill, that I just knew it's what I was going to do with the rest of my career. I set myself up up to be able to leave about three and a half years ago and work with people on a full-time basis, teaching them how to ethically influence others. That was a really interesting transition, one that a lot of people make, and even more so now and since 2020 with how people have been looking for opportunities to be more in charge of their own destiny. When you were setting that up for yourself, what were some of the key steps that you took in order to know that it was going to be a successful transition from running an insurance agency to being a speaker and a thought leader? Once I got involved with it and I really began 
began to see opportunities, even during my day job at the insurance company, I started to recognize through my certification with Dr. Robert Cialdini that I could start doing things like speaking outside of the four walls of my company. My company was very gracious to allow me to do that. So I started setting up a business on the side. And then as time went by, I did more and more. For example, I finally got the website and then I started building that out. And I started seeing how important LinkedIn was, building out my reputation there. I started writing my first book before I left the insurance company. So when I made that decision in November of 2018 to finally leave, I felt like I had an infrastructure to step into. I didn't have to start the book and build the website and do all of those things. I got to focus on the content and marketing myself and doing all the things you need to do to be a successful small business owner. That's really sad. I hope that people listening to this understand how you put those infrastructure steps in place to create the support and also give you the confidence that you were going to be able to succeed in this area. What was one of the first paid gigs that you got that convinced you that this was going to be a viable path forward? When I left the company, one of the first opportunities I had was from an associate that I had met 30 years prior when I worked at the insurance company and we had formed a friendship. Over the decades, we still had a friendship. And he said he wanted to be one of the first people to hire me. So I went out to St. Louis, Missouri in January, just a few months after I had left the insurance company. And I spoke to his insurance agency and it was wonderful to be able to help somebody and his team. But he's such a good friend to be able to do that. It was a win for both of us. What was his first name? Al. I actually got to see him just over a week ago. I was in Missouri to speak at a large conference and he and a number of people on his team were there. It was wonderful to get to see him and give him a hug and spend time catching up with him. There's nothing like making that contact. Now let's pivot to the book because the influencer reads from my perspective, like a John Updike novel in that you zoom in and zoom out on a single character's life throughout decades of his career. You start off with him in college and then getting hired in his first job. Then he becomes the CEO 20 years later. One of the first steps that John, the protagonist in The Influencer, after college, he was guided to create a personal mission statement. What led you as the author and mastermind behind this to prioritize creating a personal mission statement as first step in John's journey? Much of what I write about in the book are things that I learned over the course of my lifetime and my career. So I tried to bring those things things in. And I think the earlier you do good things, the more benefit that you can derive from them. I had written a personal mission statement almost 30 years ago. I came across Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I say it's always one of the most influential books that I've ever read because I took the time to sit down and write that personal mission statement, which is something that I've read or listened to almost daily for the last 30 years. It seeps into your subconscious, into your soul, and it just starts to guide your behavior. I thought I would love for people to have a vision of who they want to be and put that down and think about it on a continual basis. So I brought that in with John. He learns it from a mentor early in his career and he takes a step and he reaps the benefits of it. I also was greatly influenced by Stephen Covey's work. And like you, not only did I read the book, I did the book. It was an exercise. There were questions to respond to and to write out and to set goals and to really understand this. So people who really read books go through the exercises get vastly more out of it. You say that you not only read it, but you've also listened to it. Share the insight about that. What's a tip or technique that you have for listening to your own personal mission statement? Well, a good friend, when I wrote my first book, came back very quickly with 13 pages of notes. I was like, how could you possibly have read the book and done this? And so I listened to it. I had, well, could you? I haven't created an audio version. He put me in touch with an app. 
which is called Voice Dream. And for, I think, $20, anybody can download it from the Apple Store. But you can bring things like Microsoft Word documents, PDFs, Google Docs into it. What I did was I wrote my personal mission statement and I imported it. And as I get up in the morning and I'm an early riser and I'm getting my coffee for about three minutes or so, that mission statement is playing while I'm getting my coffee and taking my vitamins and doing all of that. And it sets the tone for my entire day. Can you share a key part of your mission statement that's relevant to small business leaders? My mission statement is structured that, that I say that when I'm gone, when I die, I want to hear God say, well done with what you were given, that you were full with those things. And I looked at my faith, my family, my personal well-being, and my career in that order. And at the end, I always say that I will never sacrifice my faith, my family, or my personal well-being at the expense of my career. I've seen too many people who do that, and they lose the things that I think they look back on and say that was more important. So I made a choice as to where my business was going to be in the hierarchy of my life. Now, that's not to say that it's not important. It's just that there are three things that are more important. I think keeping that in perspective really helps me to manage my life better and have better relationships with the people that I love. It's that clarity that allows you and anyone who does this exercise to be able to influence and make choices in their own life. Because first you have to influence yourself. And you're talking about making choices that serve each other, your faith, your family, and your well-being ultimately make you who you are to be of service in your career. That's just my interpretation of it. Do you share that view? Yes. I'm better at what I do in business. I'm a better colleague. I'm a better trainer, speaker, all of those things because of how I feel about myself, which starts with how I prioritize all of those things in my life, my faith, family, and my personal well-being. If, for example, I let my personal well-being slip, if I gain weight and feel out of shape, I'm not going to be as effective for my clients. If I'm having trouble at home and my mind is pre occupied with that. I'm not going to be as effective with my clients. If I don't feel connected to God, I'm not going to be the kind of person I potentially could be. So I think by doing all of those things, by prioritizing them, I actually am much better for my clients because of how I'm feeling about myself and my life. This is important to because I think the first person we need to be able to influence is ourselves before we even influence others. And what you speak to with having a personal mission statement, with reinforcing it and looking for insights and applications of it daily makes a huge difference. In the book, The Influencer, we read about John going into his early sales roles. And many people are successful in sales because they have a good script. To what degree can influence be scripted for someone, maybe in a sales role, to what degree must influence be earned by who you become and the choices you make as an adult? When it comes to understanding these principles, I think that Aristotle put it best when he said, character may almost be called the most effective means of persuasion. To me, what that says is if I am a person who is authentic, if I'm somebody who is honest, if I am somebody who my clients see that I really want the best for them, that's what opens them up to any of the influential conversations that we may have. And they know that what I'm putting on the table is in their best interest as I understand it. So I think that's incredibly important that we are the kinds of people that others want to interact with. From there, I try to steer clear of anything called scripting, because sometimes that can sound like a bad telemarketer or something. I want people to so deeply understand the psychology that it becomes a part of who they are and that they understand it so well that in the moment they see how they can apply this psychology to help those that they're interacting with. One of the books that you've quoted in Influence People is a foundational book for all of us who are in business, which is Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. He does have very specific prescriptions for what to do to begin to influence people and to build business relationships. Oh, and you encourage people to adopt those principles and ideas for building 
relationships and your, your network and to establish connections without sounding scripted, like you say, like a bad telemarketer? First of all, I'll say Dale Carnegie's book is still a gold standard. There's a reason it sold so many millions and millions of copies over the last almost 80 years now. It's because what he found works. Now, Carnegie wasn't a social psychologist or a behavioral economist. He probably would have made an outstanding social psychologist because he was very observant and he cataloged what he was seeing with people who were so successful during his lifetime. And he pulled those in. So he gives you 30 chapters of bites that you can take. And if you put them into practice, you will probably become much more influential and have more friends. What Robert Cialdini and other social psychologists have done is to share why it works. They give you that underpinning. The foundation is the psychology. And that's where when you start to understand that, then you have more than 30 opportunities that Carnegie so aptly put out there that you can do much more with it. That's how I would like to see people combine the information. Read Carnegie's book, then go pick up a book like my own or pick up Robert Cialdini's and start reading about the psychology and go, oh, now this makes sense. I get why what he tells me to do works so well. I see other ways that I could use the psychology to enjoy more success and happiness. Let's bring this into a specific example. Liking is a foundation of influence. You need to have rapport and beyond just rapport and attention, you need people to trust you and like you. What are some ways that people can specifically apply this principle in remembering that it's important to establish common ground with either a new prospect or maybe a new teammate? The principle of liking says that we prefer to say yes to the people that we know and like. Everybody gets that. There are very simple ways to get people to like you. For example, Bill, we find out we have something in common, you will naturally like me more. It could be pets we have, where we live, sports we enjoy. Any of those things naturally make people like each other. Or if someone pays a genuine compliment, right? Then you're feeling the endorphins are flowing and you're thinking that person was nice for pointing that out. But the key here, Bill, and for your audience is to know this, it's never about me getting you to like me. It's always about me using the psychology to come to know and like you. Good news is the same things that will cause you to like me will cause me to like you. In other words, when we find out that we enjoy the same sports or exercise or pets or anything like that, I am naturally liking you more. And if I pay you a genuine compliment, I'm thinking more highly of you. Because all of this is working on me, that's what we need to go into situations thinking. What can I do to get to know and like this person? And it will naturally come back from that other person. But the good news is this, the more that you see I know you, I like you, and I care for you, most people believe friends do right by friends. And that's what opens you up to whatever I might be offering. But that changes what I offer because I do want your best. That's why I say liking is the foundation for everything else. It begins to inform all of the other psychology that I teach people. If you miss this and just go on to some of the other stuff, you might come across as someone who is trying to manipulate someone into doing something. And we never, ever want to manipulate someone. That's one of the big red lines in ethical versus unethical influencing is whether you are actually considering whether you're asking people to take steps that are in their own best interest by working with you, by purchasing your product, by making agreements. What else would you add to that to help people understand that the principles are best used in the context of 
ethical frameworks and ethical relationships. I think everybody could relate to this. It feels good to help the people that you like. It could be your family. It could be your friends. It could be somebody that you've grown close to in business. But that feeling of helping somebody, doing something for those people that genuinely benefits them, you have that opportunity with far more people than you realize. You would think about taking this psychology with a thought that's always out in front. What can I do to come to know and like this person? Again, I can fall back on, I'm going to talk about what I have in common. I'm going to look for things I can genuinely compliment, and I'm going to begin to convince myself that they are a good person. And it's funny how when you find something good in somebody, it gets easier to find the second and the third and the fourth good thing. So it's a choice about what you're going to look for and what you're going to bring to the conversation to enhance that relationship for both people. In the age we're in now, where many people connect with each other, say on LinkedIn, how do you start to apply this principle in two or three specific suggestions? so that it doesn't come across as scripted or superficial flattery, but you're actually making a connection and looking to establish that bond of commonality and of liking each other. Whenever I connect with somebody on LinkedIn, I always respond if they reach out to me and I will ask them, hey, how did you find me? And hopefully they respond back and there will be some back and forth. It makes social media social. If I reach out to somebody, I always personalize it. I would say, Bill, I hope you enjoyed the message I shared last week at the conference. I would love to connect with you here on LinkedIn, but a small personalized message. And when you connect with me, I will send you a thank you. I'll say, hey, Bill, I really appreciate you connecting. Now it's up to you. If you want to have the interaction, it's there, but I'm putting out the offer to be able to do that. Third thing that I do as I listen to your show, I found a few people who I am connected to that I'm friends with, reached out and said, hey, I just heard you on my quest for the best and I'm going to be a guest of Bill. So we've had some interaction. And as I do this continually, that's where people feel connected to me. And that's where I feel connected to them. Some of these people I've not met in person, but I look forward to doing it because I'm taking those little steps every time. I think, and I hope they see that it is genuine. I really enjoy getting to know the people that I'm connected with. And I do want to help them. One example of using LinkedIn, Bill, was prior to coming on to your show and listening to my quest for the best, I noticed a couple of my connections were on the show, Amy Franco and Vanessa Bonds. So I reached out to them and said, hey, I'm going to be on my quest for the best tomorrow with Bill. I just heard your episode. Well, I had some back and forth. So with these people, we are not only connected, but we're having conversation. And that's what helps me get to know them. It helps them get to know me. I hope that they see my genuineness in the connection because it is. And those are the things that make me want to help them and probably make them want to help me. It's an investment. It's not a huge investment, but it's a consistent investment in the people that I'm connected to. Brian, let's take it a step further. In your book, you talk about the principle of unity, which goes beyond liking. Can you explain what unity is, please? Sure. The principle of unity says that we prefer to say yes to those who are of us, people that we are deeply connected to. This goes beyond mere liking, which we might think that we have things in common or similarities, etc. This is a deep connection. Best example that I can think of this is my father. My father served in the United States Marine Corps during Vietnam. I always noticed from the time I was a little boy that when my dad met another Marine, particularly ones who'd been in combat, it seemed like he felt closer to them than me, his own flesh and blood. And as I learned about this principle, I started to realize it. They share a common bond that very few people can relate to. When you are unitized with another person, helping that person in a sense is helping yourself. I know that if my father helped another Marine, he got so much satisfaction out of it because it was almost as if he was helping 
helping himself. And the same thing applied to other Marines. If they helped my father, they felt like they were also helping themselves. The other bond that is deep like this is family. We will do things for family, even distant relatives, maybe relatives we don't necessarily like that much, but we will do things for them that we might not even do for close friends simply because they're family, because we are connected by genetics. That's what the principle of unity is about. It's really important that you say there's so many ways that we have unity with others. It could be by a common college or university experience. It could be through a former employment experience. It could be a membership at a particular association. It could be we're in the same industry or pursuing common interests. All of these things just open up the world of unities where we have the same kind of connection. It goes deeper than just liking and taps into all of these connections where we want to help others who are part of our tribe. You talk about a really great example of this with Al Harris in the book. Let's go into that to deconstruct it. In the book, the main character, John, he is a medical supply sales rep and he goes and he visits a medical facility and it's run by a man named Al Harris. So he and Al go to lunch. And during lunch, he says, Al, you know, I've been to a lot of clients and yours more than anybody seems to have a family atmosphere. What do you do? Why is it that way? And Al says, I'm going to let you in on something that I don't tell everybody, but I'm a recovering alcoholic. And I try to hire people who are on the path to recovery because if they can beat the disease, they're certainly going to be able to work in this facility and help customers. What he goes on to explain is a little bit of what we had just talked about, that when he is helping someone on a path to recovery, it helps him. And those people see that somebody is giving them a chance, placing confidence in them. It makes them want to succeed even more. This character is based on a real person that I know through my time in the insurance industry, whose name is Al, at his insurance agency on many occasions has hired people who are on the path to recovery from alcoholism because he has beaten the disease and he's been sober for more than 30 years. I know that when Al is reaching out and helping somebody, it's it's as if he's helping himself and people love him and feel so deeply connected to him because of that. It really speaks to the idea of being your authentic self and not trying to hide these pieces because you never know where you're going to have that understanding and that that sense of unity that comes from sharing who you are and the experiences you've had and what you've learned from them. Wouldn't you agree with that? Absolutely. If he just put that part of his life in a box and left it behind more than 30 years ago, he wouldn't have touched as many lives as he has. But by being honest about who he was and what he went through and where he is on his path, that draws people to him. We don't want to meet perfect people because we feel like we could never be perfect. But if we meet somebody that we can look up to and say, wow, you went through that and yet you're here. Maybe I can do that too. There's such satisfaction of helping people make that transition in their lives. That's so much more important than just helping them get a promotion or earning a little bit more money because that's not necessarily life transforming, but somebody giving you a chance and modeling for them that, hey, there is opportunity for real peace and happiness. That's incredible. To actually be seen, accepted, and know that no matter what hardship you've been been through serves as inspiration, especially when you know the road that it took to get there. Let's just move it into the world of athletics for a minute. You've run marathons and the first time you ran a marathon, you were actually cajoled into doing it by a friend, even though you were very physically active with a lot of weightlifting, but you've never run a marathon. And all of a sudden you started to change. Talk about what that transformation was like and how that bonds you with other people who have run marathons. I was a powerlifter and a bodybuilder through college and for years after college. And when I stopped competing, and I still stayed in shape, but 
friend about a decade after I stopped competing, waited my wife and I and a number of people that we could run the Columbus Marathon. Really didn't want to do it at first, but through him and my wife saying, come on, let's do this. We'll have fun and we'll get in good shape. I started running and something happened, Bill, and that was that I fell in love with it. And all of a sudden, I'd not only gotten the marathon, but I was getting in 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons. And I changed from the inside out. When I fell in love with the exercise, I naturally saw myself as a runner and I began to do the kinds of things that runners do. And it became easy to ultimately do those things. I had a what I call a lasting impact because my self-identity changed and we typically will do our best to live in alignment with how we see ourselves. And I saw myself as a runner, so I just naturally did what runners do. That makes so much sense. Let me ask you if you're ready for this challenge. Brian, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? I am going to give it my best shot, Bill. So we talked about earlier about who influenced you when you were growing up and you talked about Coach Alice. When you were a teenager, Brian, what's a song that you loved? song that I loved, I think anything by... The cars, because that reminds me so deeply of high school. Your mission to is to help people use the tools of influence to improve their lives and their business. What's the most effective way that you've found to get the word out about your mission each week? On a weekly basis, I've been blogging for 14 years, almost every single week for 14 years. And so that is one way that I have certainly spread the word. What would you say is the best advice you ever received as an adult? The best advice would be my father, as I was going to college, saying, treat this like a business. Do your work eight to five, then you can do all you want afterwards. I adopted that and it has transitioned into my career too, where I'm very easy for me to sit down and do what has to be done so then I can enjoy the things that I want to afterwards. Kind of goes back to George Orwell's, there's freedom and discipline. Absolutely. So what would you say is the worst advice you ever received as an adult? My cynical part wants to say get married, but that would be a lie. I have a very happy marriage, but that's just my sense of humor. Boy, I'm hard pressed to think of bad advice, something that I took and I say, wow, I wish I had not done that. I had people encouraging me to leave my corporate job well before I did. I'm glad I did not. I felt like there were still things to learn. I think it worked out exactly the way that it should have. So I'm glad that I was patient. I think in the next week or so, you're going to be speaking to the National Glass Association Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. Will you address the problems that a lack of transparency can cause with getting people to trust you? Yes, because the emphasis when I talk about influence, the first principle that I always talk about is principle of liking, because as I said earlier, it sets the foundation for everything else. It's usually an aha moment when people start to realize, oh, it's not about me getting people to like me and working the room and doing all those things that people dread about networking. It's about me authentically coming to know and like the people that I'm with. And most of us have that capability. Brian, I asked about lack of transparency because it's a glass association. So I just want to make sure you got that. <laughs> well played, amigo. Well played. <laughs> you were a participant in a conference. What's one way that you could tell that a speaker authentically wanted to get to know you and understand more about you versus someone who is just doing it as a technique super I think we all have BS meters, meaning we can see by the look in the eye, tone of voice, body language, things like that. We are able to see, is this person really enjoying this conversation? Do they really feel connected here? Or is this just have to do this? It's part of the job. So I want somebody who, like me, would say, I am blessed to be able to be here, to be able to meet these people, and you never know where it's going to go. So I want to do what I can to come to know and like these people. I know I've hosted many speakers when I was president of the National Speakers Association chapter in Philadelphia. I could always tell those who were genuinely interested in me as a person, as well as others they were talking with, because they would keep eye contact and they weren't 
looking around the room for who else they needed to meet with or who was quote unquote more important. And I've always found that to be a real good signal that someone was with me based upon the eye contact that they maintain. What's your definition of personal success? I know I'm being successful when I'm happy with what I have. I go back to a proverb that says happy is the man who wants what he has. Think that if we look at the things that we have, not what we don't have, but what we have and say, I'm blessed to have these things that we can feel happy and successful. And it doesn't mean that we don't aspire for more. I always say content, but not complacent. I want to do much more with my career and much more with my life. But if I don't, that doesn't mean that I wasn't a success. I've lived a wonderful life because I look around and I am blessed at what I've been given. In your earlier book, Influence People, you share a story about giving your wife, Jane, golf advice. It's based on your business experience. It's based on your knowledge of her and you share some great tips with her and that it just doesn't land quite as you had hoped or expected. Then you see an article by Corey Pavin come out with essentially the same advice you gave and what was her reaction? When I gave the advice, it basically went in one ear and out the other. And I didn't realize it until a few weeks later when she was reading a book and says, oh, listen to what Corey Pavin says. And for people who are not up on golf, Corey Pavin won the U.S. Open in 1990. And at one time, he was the number two golfer in the world. Well, she read this paragraph and it was almost exactly what I had told her. So I said, I told you that. She said, no, you didn't. And nothing I could do, Bill, would convince her that two weeks before I had shared that advice. The reason is Corey Pavin Haven's an expert. Brian Ahern is not when it comes to golf advice. And so I always tell people, sometimes it doesn't matter what's being said. It was just as truthful coming out of my mouth as when he wrote it on the pages of that book. But I wasn't believed because I wasn't an expert. And I encourage people, do everything you can, build your expertise and make sure people know about it before you begin interacting with them because they will pay more attention and be more likely to take your advice if they see you as an expert. You gave the principle that was underlying that example. What's the name of that principle so that we have an easy way of recalling it? It's called the principle of authority. We just simply tells us that when we're making decisions, we defer to people that we see as having superior wisdom or expertise. The more somebody knows you're really wise or an expert, the more likely they are to follow your advice. Brian, you describe an example in Influence People where a sticky note made an enormous difference in getting people who had been overpaid by part of a system more than $700,000 in fees. It was just a, an administrative error. You described how a yellow sticky note that accompanied a message where you were asking people to refund money that had been paid to them by accident as part of your commission structure when you ran an insurance company. The importance of that yellow sticky note got an incredible level of compliance. It was something like 130 out of 150 people gladly did it, largely due to this added note. Can you explain what went on behind that and the takeaway for people who are thinking of how to personalize and increase their influence in business communications? We had overpaid 150 insurance agents one month to the tune of $700,000. We needed to get the money back and there was no way to just electronically draw it out of their account. So we were going to have to send a letter to ask them to sit down and write a check for whatever the amount was, $5,000, $10,000, knew this was going to be a hard ask because once people have something, even though they legitimately shouldn't have got it, they still feel like it's theirs. Fortunately, I had done some training with the accounting department the prior summer and talked about 
how using something as simple as a yellow sticky note can make a big difference in terms of people's response rate. In fact, in one study, simply putting a yellow sticky note and personally signing it doubled the response rate when people were asked to take a survey. So I turned to the accounting manager and I said, Steve, do you remember the study of the sticky notes? He said, yes. And I said, if you don't have time to put a sticky note on every one of the 150 letters, call me and I'll come do it. He said, no, I remember. I'll do it. A few weeks after he sent the letters, I was talking to him and I said, how's the collection going? His exact words, Bill, were, I'm floored. I said, why? He said, we've already gotten money back from 130 of the 150. The optimist in me said, you mean we didn't get it all back? He laughed at me and he goes, come on, we're talking about money. He goes, I fully expected people to say things like, it's your problem, you fix it, take it out of next month's account, uh, put me on a payment plan, anything except writing a check. A few months later, as we had lunch and I said, well, how did it end up? He said, we got money back in full from 147 of the 150. Now, he was a skeptic to begin with. You know, that psychology stuff, that stuff doesn't really matter. He was a believer after that. And it helped the company recover a significant amount of money that was needed to do other things with. Brian, you have helped us become more of a believer in the power and science of influence and to do so in ethical ways. You talked about your high school coach who reminded us that luck is the combination of preparation and opportunity. We taught the importance of a personal mission statement something that you and I and many others listening have picked up from Stephen Covey. You referenced Aristotle, who says that the most effective means of persuasion is to be yourself. For these and so many more reasons, I want to thank you for joining me today on My Quest for the Best. It was my pleasure, Bill. Brian, tell me, before we say goodbye for now, where is it that we can go to find out more about you and your work online? The best place would be my website, which is influencepeople.biz. We're going to link to influencepeople.biz. And in the show notes, we're going to make sure that we link to each of your books, your social media, as well as your blog, so that people can find out more about the work that you have going on and contact you to help educate and inspire them to be more influential in their business day to day. So for these reasons, Brian Ahern, author of The Influencer, I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you for having me, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.